Today's read, The Miseducation of the Negro by Carter G. Woodson. Chapter 2, How We Missed the Mark. How we have arrived at the present state of affairs can be understood only by studying the forces effective in the development of Negro education since it was systematically undertaken immediately after emancipation. To point out merely the, def- the defects as they appear today will be of little benefit to the present and future generations. These things must be viewed in their historic setting. The conditions of today have been determined by what has taken place in the past. And in a careful study of this history, we may see more clearly the great theater of events in which the Negro has played a part. We may understand better what has, what his role has been and how well he has functioned in it. The idea of educating the Negroes after the Civil War was largely a prompting of philanthropy. Their white neighbors failed to assume this responsibility. These black people had been liberated as a result of a sectional conflict out of which their former owners had emerged as victims. From this class then, the freedmen could not expect much sympathy or cooperation in the effort to prepare themselves to figure as citizens of a modern republic. From functionaries of the United States government itself and from those who participated in the conquest of the secessionist, early came the plan of teaching these freedmen the simple duties of life as worked out by the Freedmen's Bureau and philanthropic agencies. When systematized, this effort became a program for the organization of churches and schools and the direction of them along lines which had been considered most conducive to the progress of people otherwise circumstance. Here and there, some variation was made in this program in view of the fact that the status of the freedmen in no way paralleled that of their friends and teachers, but such thought was not general. When the Negroes in some way would learn to perform the duties which other elements of the population have prepared themselves to discharge, they would be duly qualified, it was believed, to function as citizens of the country. Inasmuch as most Negroes lived in the agricultural South, moreover, and only a few of them at first acquired small farms, there was little in their life which any one of thought could not have easily understood. The poverty which afflicted them for a generation after emancipation held them down to the lowest order of society, nominally free, but economically enslaved. The participation of the freedmen in government for a few years during the period known as the Reconstruction had little bearing on their situation except 
that they did join with the uneducated poor whites in bringing, bringing about certain much desired social reforms, especially in giving the South its first plan of democratic education and providing for a school system at public expense. Neither this inadequately supported school system nor the struggling higher institutions of a classical order established about the same time, however, connected the Negroes very closely with life as it was. These institutions were concerned, rather, with life as they hoped to make it. When the Negro found himself deprived of influence in politics, therefore, and at the same time unprepared to participate in the higher functions in the industrial development which this country began to undergo, it soon became became evident to him that he was losing ground in the basic things of life. He was spending his time studying about the things which had been or might be, but he was learning little to help him do better the tasks at hand. Since the Negroes believed that the causes of this untoward condition lay without the race, migration was attempted and immigration to Africa was again urged. At this psychological moment came the wave of industrial education, which swept the country by storm. The educational authorities in the cities and states throughout the Black Belt began to change the course of study to make the training of the Negro conform to this policy. The missionary teachers from the North, in defense of their idea of more liberal training, however, fearlessly attacked this new education policy, and the Negroes participating in the same in the same dispute arrayed, arrayed themselves respectively on one side or the other. For a generation thereafter, the quarrel as to whether the Negroes should be given a classical or a practical education was the dominant topic in Negro schools and churches throughout the United States. Labor was the most important thing of life, it was argued. Practical education counted in reaching that end, and the Negro worker must be taught to solve this problem of efficiency before directing attention to other things. Others more narrow-minded than the advocates of industrial education, seized upon the idea, feeling that, although the Negro must have some semblance of education, it would be a fine stroke to be able to make a distinction between the training given the Negro and that provided for the whites. Inasmuch as the industrial educational idea rapidly gained ground, two, Many Negroes, for political purposes, began to espouse it, and schools and colleges, hoping thereby to obtain money, worked out accordingly makeshift provision, provisions for such instruction, although they could not satisfactorily offer it. 
A few real industrial schools actually equipped themselves for this work and turned out a number of graduates with such preparation. Unfortunately, however, the affair developed into a sort of battle of words. For in spite of all they said and did, the majority of the Negroes, those who did make some effort to obtain an education, did not actually receive either the industrial or the classical education. Negroes attended industrial schools, took such trainings as was prescribed, and received their diplomas. But few of them developed adequate efficiency to be able to do what they were supposedly trained to do. The schools in which they were educated could not provide for all the experience with machinery which white apprentices trained in factories had. Such industrial education as these Negroes received then was merely to master a technique already discarded in progressive centers and even in less complicated operations of industry, these schools had no such facilities as to parallel the numerous processes of factories conducted on the plan of the division of labor. Except what value such training might have in the development of the mind by making practical applications of mathematics and science, then it was a failure. The majority of Negro graduates of industrial schools, therefore, have gone into other avenues, and too often into those for which they have had no preparation whatsoever. Some few who actually prepared for the industrial sphere by self-improvement likewise sought other occupations for the reason that Negroes were generally barred from higher pursuits by trade unions and being unable to develop captains of industry to increase the demand for persons in these lines, the Negroes have not opened up many such opportunities for themselves. During these years too, the schools for the classical education for Negroes have not done any better. They have proceeded on the basis that every ambitious person needs a liberal education, when as a matter of fact, this does not necessarily follow. The Negro trained in the advanced phases of literature, philosophy, and politics has been unable to develop far in using his knowledge because of having to function in the lower spheres of the social order. Advanced knowledge of science, mathematics, and languages, moreover, has not been much more useful except for mental discipline because of the dearth of opportunity to apply such knowledge among people who were largely common laborers in towns or peons on the plantation. The extent to which such higher education has been successful in leading the Negro to think, which above all is the chief purpose of education, has merely made him more of a malcontent when he can sense the drift of things and appreciate the impossibility of success envisioning conditions as they really are. It is very clear, therefore, that we do not have in the life of the Negro today 
a large number of persons who have been benefited by either of the systems about which we have quarreled so long. The number of Negro mechanics and artisans have comparatively declined during the last two generations. The Negroes do not proportionately represent as many skilled laborers as they did before the Civil War. If the practical education which the Negroes received helped to improve the situation so that it is today no worse than what it is, certainly it did not solve the problem as was expected of it. On the other hand, in spite of much classical education of the Negroes, we do not find in the race a large supply of thinkers and philosophers. One excuse is that scholarship among Negroes has been vitiated by the necessity for all of them to combat segregation and fight to retain standing ground in the struggle of the races. Comparatively few American Negroes have produced creditable literature and still fewer have made any large contribution to philosophy or science. They have not risen to the, height, to the heights of black men farther removed from the influences of slavery and segregation. For this reason, we do not find among American Negroes a Pushkin, a Gomez, a Joffrey, a Captain, or a Dumas. Even men like Roland Hayes and Henry O'Tanner have risen to the higher levels by getting out of this country to relieve themselves of our stifling traditions and to recover to recover from their education.